to like 500 bison to 500,000 today. And that was done without major government handouts, just by creating the right business model for expansion of the bison herds. Hopefully we can do the same thing with mammoth herds, maybe even faster. And that was George Church. Now there is quite a lot to say about this person, so I'm hopefully going to capture enough of them where you can get kind of excited about this conversation. So Dr. Church is a professor at Harvard and MIT, has co-authored somewhere around 480 papers, 130 patent publications, and has wrote a book called Regenesis. Regenesis is actually a really fun read, so I definitely recommend checking that out. Qu quite frankly, he, anything with like genetics and genomics, you're probably going to find this guy somewhere in, in like the co-author or was a part of it. There's also a fantastic book called Wooly, which is about his work, him and his team's work in bringing back, as you know, the tagline is, the woolly mammoth into Siberia for a variety of reasons, which is also really interesting, which is, which is also being made into a movie as well. In this episode, we get into a lot of the main things that he's been working on, like the current events, like storing data on DNA, the woolly mammoth project. So if you want to get a sense of who he is and kind of the current events with George, this is going to be the episode for you. Tune in every Tuesday to the Learning with Lowell podcast. Podcast with me, your host, Lowell, to hear world-class scientists, startup founders, CEOs, and authors, people who you wouldn't normally hear about but are making huge waves all the same. You'll understand them and their work by hearing their passion, laughter, advice, and hearing them, the experts, break down what they're working on so that you can learn, push the boundaries of your knowledge, and understanding. Three quick ways to show your support and get unique, exclusive, and fun content is by checking out learningwithlowell.com website, our Patreon page. Even if it's just a buck, it keeps this advertisement free. And subscribing. I was looking at your website, and especially in the Wooly book, it says how you have kind of a huge, prolific lab, and you've had a lot of people go through that. And so it kind of reminded me of uh, Genghis Khan and how I think it's one in 20 people in Russia are related to Genghis Khan in one way or, number, uh, one way or another. And so it's kind of like you've trained up the same thing with genetics. So has anyone ever compared you to Genghis Khan in that way? Yeah, that's cute. I, I, don't, th I don't think I've, uh, I, I've heard that comparison before. I've heard Darwin and Santa Claus and a few other ones, but not yet Genghis Khan. <laughs> I, know what, I know what you're saying. Yeah. So the, the other kind of fun question just before we get into like hard stuff is there's a, a guy named Elon Musk who likes rockets and like Teslas and whatnot. And he, he tends to get really kind of strange questions at Q&As. And so I was wondering, have you ever gotten a question that's so kind of strange, but at the same time you're, you're like intrigued by it that you just had fun answering it? Uh, yeah, I, I get strange questions. Um, I'm, I mean, I, not too judgmental, so just try to answer whatever. I try not to over manage the the Q and A. I, I think that I think what, what happens is things that start out strange eventually become mainstream. So I think the first time that someone asked me about woolly mammoths, it was a it was a strange question because I I didn't work on them, and they should have been asking about sequencing, and instead they asked about synthesis. But then as the years went by, uh, we, you know, we started working on them and it became less strange. Still strange, but less strange. Right, it's going to have a really interesting impact on, on our climate if the Wooly book comes out right. And it's funny you, you mentioned Elon because he, you know, I did a, a two-day seminar, you know, lecture discussion in, in his factory a few years ago, which is online. That's the whole, whole thing. It's like six hours of video with slides and everything. And there were some strange questions <laughs> in that session. Anyway, it was, it was, it was fun being in his factory because it was a time when the Tesla was brand new and, and he had just done a bit part in Iron Man. So he had the Iron Man suit there. So 
So apparently he's the he's like the the guy Iron Man is inspired from. Like why they made the movies was because of him. He was like the inspiration for it. Other than the comics, of course, but like apparently he was like one he's of the. He's an things. example. Uh, I I think yeah. Iron Man is based on the comic, which predates Elon. But yeah, he's he's a good mm-hmm. he's a good. Also, there's a, a, a just a, another quick kind of maybe silly comment or something I've noticed like Genghis Khan is that in the in the in the book they talk about how you went into the lab and they did some genetic engineering on a mouse to give it characteristics of mammoth like the red fur and well I guess I should ask you like how how factually accurate is that book is that like a, like one to one or is it like more dramatized so like, did that happen so so. Ben Meserich, all, all of his well-known books are nonfiction, but they are dramatic, dramatized. So in other words, he tries to recreate conversations. He thinks that's the way they would be. In some cases, he tries to predict the future, but usually he's pretty honest about saying, this is our extrapolation of where we think it's going in the next few months. Pretty sure that mouse experiment fell into that category of that's where he thought it was going, honestly. That's not where it's going. <laughs> <laughs> it was a reasonable guess at the time. You know, he's not a scientist, but he he loves scientists, and he and he certainly loves that particular story. So he did he did a pretty good job overall, I think. And I think the the film will also be similarly. The film will be, will be similarly intri- intriguing to, to non scientists, hopefully. I think the film will be interesting, especially for you, since like half the book kind of read like a biography about you. So it's like you get like the a mini biopic, and then you get like a fun, a good version of Jurassic Park, where it doesn't end horribly, hopefully. Yeah, I think people are ready for a a a, 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 a kind and gentle and fuzzy and furry version. And uh, I think in one of your talks, you were commenting how the the protein that they made the dinosaurs dependent on was something that you find in the environment naturally. So it was like a very bad control. I mean, it's 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 crazy because you know Michael Crichton went to Harvard Medical School. He he must have known biochemistry quite well. But lysine, which was the amino acid that was supposedly keeping them restricted to biocontained, as we sometimes call it, is present in every food. Literally, every food, plant and animal, contains lysine. The NIH r- recommends things like diaminopamilic acid, but that's only slightly better. That that's that's not found in every food, but it is found in a variety of bacterial cell walls, and, and hence bacteria. What we did when we did a biocontainment, which was you know you could say roughly inspired by the Jurassic Park in NIH guidelines, we we did it with BIP A, which is amino acid, which is definitely not found in nature at all. You have to make it by organic chemical synthesis. I think that's a better containment. It sounds that way to me, especially since if it like jumped out, like it kind of die, or at least not be active, because it wouldn't be able to get. It'd be like one of those uh, tardigrades in space. They just kind of like go dormant because they don't have yeah. the things to propagate. Yeah, that's that's the key to survival for certain species. Some some they they win by replicating rapidly. Others win by not replicating, but staying but staying liable. So transitioning more into genomic instability type questions, I was doing my research on this, and one of the one of the ways they kind of is talked about as that they, they found evidence for one of the ways that genomic instability happens is through NAD plus depletion. Are there other ones that are like lesser known or ones that you think that 
are probably going to be parts of that puzzle that haven't had the research come out yet? Most of it, I would, I, I'm not even sure NAD would be the top of my list. That's, uh, that, that's more involved in, you know, mitochondrial function and maybe sirtuin function. No, at the top of the list would be double-strand breaks that can get caused by a variety of uh, uh, mechanisms, uh, galactic cosmic radiation, clinic, clinical radiation and x-rays, you know, radioisotopes in your food and so forth. And that, those, when you, when you get a double-strand break, then you, most of the ends of your chromosomes are, are uh, covered by telomeres, but your double-strand breaks are not. And so you can start getting really crazy rearrangements, and then it, then you just go through more and more rounds of, you, you can get kind of an error catastrophe going on. There's also a phenomenon called chromothripsis, which is similar, where you'll get just a lot of breaks at once. That would be a big genomic instability. Another one is sometimes in the process of creating cancer cells, you'll mutate the genes that are responsible for fixing mutations. And so it's kind of self-referential. And they and then once you've made a so-called mutator version of those genes, um, then, then, then you get instability. So those would be at the top of my list uh, for genomic instability. So a question I had, and I, I tried digging into this, but how is it that as we go about our lives, we can get bombarded with this UV radiation and all the stuff that breaks down our DNA like that, but yet our, our germline DNA kind of is preserved and doesn't get those types of things for millions and millions of years. There's only like slight mutations and it doesn't have like cancer living in it and stuff like that. So how does, why, why is one protected and one not? If that makes sense. I guess there are two, two categories of reasons. I mean, one is Actually, all of our cells are repaired to some extent, and we and we you know we accumulate maybe on the order of uh, a mutation per cell division, both in the germline and in the soma. The second reason is that the soma doesn't need to be as protected as germline, so you can you can, since the germline is a tiny fraction of your body, you can spend more energy doing the repair. But that's that's another thing, and then the third and probably most potent is that is that your germline gets cleaned up every generation, right? In other words, if there's something messed up about it, it'll die. Um, and, if, and, if it's, and if it's as good or better than the parents, it will proliferate. And so the D Darwinian cleans up the germline in a way that doesn't really happen in the soma, not in a particularly meaningful way. Going off the idea that it lasts for a while, you made you basically put a, a number of copies of your, I think it might have been a billion or several million copies of your book into some DNA. Yeah, seventy billion, seven billion. Yeah, <laughs> that's a bestseller. Yeah, it's it's the it's it's it beat the record for previous publication. Probably, probably I think it was the sum of the top hundred books in history. How hard it, would it be to do that to the germline so you could add the repository of human knowledge and then like keep it attached to humans so even if technology were we to have like a dark age or something like that that we could find it again in our dna would that be difficult to do or maybe just a bad thing to do but if is that possible there's some proposals to do that for example there's an artist in my lab named joe davis who has proposed to put wikipedia into the apple to restore the, the tree of knowledge and and get us back to eden you know, it's very 
lovely set of artistic thoughts that I just scratched the surface of there. Putting it in the human germline, of course, you have all kinds of ethical issues about manipulating the human germline in any way. You know, there's problems of how compact you can make it. Uh, Wikipedia, even without the images, is an incompressed form would be challenging. But of course, it, yeah, to put in the germline. Um, another way of looking at it, you know, it really w would be a great way was if it, if you could actually read it in that form. So if it, so. We are working on ways that you can read and write from DNA into cellular states, basically. Lineage, we have uh, lineage states that's coming out uh, in a paper soon, developmental lineage being recorded in every cell in your body. But other, in principle, you could read and write to DNA inside your brain. And that, that would be a nice place to store it because then it's, uh, in a certain sense, not only the yeah, so you could you could you could benefit from the the information there, principle. In fact, when that story came out, uh, when we published it in, in Science, the journal, and uh, there was a little news coverage, I got quite a few suggestions from people saying, "Hey, I'd like to read. You know, I'd like. To, can I just read it by eating it?" <laughs> and that's that's not true, but but there is there is some. Technological possibility of being able to input and output to to neurons, and thereby entering into your, you know, memory system somehow. But, but you don't you don't need to keep it in the, in the human germlines necessarily. Uh, you you want to put it somewhere where we, where we will notice it and 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 uh, do something with it. Probably just a desiccated form would be good, or you could store it in some organism that has tons of junk dna like say uh amoeba or or lilies or something um but you'd have to have some way to to get our attention even if we're on germline we might not we might not notice it there um you need you need to notice it. you need to have the tools to be able to read it in essence we would for this method that's going to be coming out soon or like the, the paper we'd be able to you'd be able to like stick it in the dna and we'd be able to access it from our brain that's so crazy uh, What's coming out? What's coming out is is uh, recording developmental lineage of every cell uh, in in a body. The recording the recording information in the brain is still kind of at the early proposal stage. We have little bits of it, uh, so we can have new microscopy methods where we can read out the the state of the brain activity in the connectome. And then we can encode encode that into DNA if we we wish. But what's what you know what we need are better systems for doing that natively, all within the brain. We we've we've encoded movies into into uh, CRISPR arrays in bacterial cells. There are little baby steps that have been taken, but nothing that that is a full fledged input output system using neurons. There's this comment in the book and online about you where you kind of see yourself as a time traveler and so if you really are from the future like maybe that's how you're able to keep a good sense of where things are supposed to be going you've kind of like trapped it in your neurons like that so it's like they don't degrade yeah i i can neither confirm or deny those rumors oh it's like when someone asks obama if he if there's aliens and like whatever way he answers it's like it doesn't matter because people are just gonna have fun with it but is for the future that you want to see 
from when you first started, are we far off from it? Like, are we from where you, when you first were getting your PhD and you envisioned the future, how you wanted it to be are after a lifetime of work, have we kind of gotten to that level or is there still some stuff left from your original vision? Well, first of all, there's that, that word lifetime. Hopefully I'm not getting close to the end, <laughs> getting close to the beginning and, and partly. And, and one of the things that's missing from, from, I guess my young, more youthful vision would be aging reversal. We'll have our first paper on aging reversal. I think it's like our 12th paper from my lab on, on some, some topic of aging, but this one's on aging reversal demonstrated in, in mice. And now we're moving it into dogs and humans. So that's, that's, that's something that's missing and, and, and is key in defining what a lifetime is. Or, or what my lifetime might be. I think most everything else is either on track or, or shockingly ahead of schedule. Uh, for example, bringing down the price of DNA sequencing. That was an obsession that I've had since I was a teenager. And we've brought it down 10 million fold so far. I think we're going to bring it down and probably another 100 fold in the next few years, and probably another 100 after that. I think editing a genome is a little bit pokier than that. I mean, we, we've been working on that most of the time I've had in my lab. Well, in a, a certain sense, I worked on the early days of recombinant DNA, which was a form of editing in the, in the uh, 1970s. But that, you know, the latest uh, improvement there was not 10 million fold, it was fourfold to get to CRISPR. CRISPR was fairly disappointing, uh, I think, to me personally, but there's plenty more, not many more uh CRISPR is just the eighth in a series of editing and then there's three more methods that we're working on so uh yeah i think things are pretty much on track i mean it's it's, it's it, we're living it's a great time to be living because everything is so much easier than it used to be every 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 scientific all technology development science applications are just now you just now you're just limited by your creativity before you are limited by the methodology as well as your creativity. I think there was a talk where someone asked about transhumanism and you made a pretty good argument saying that we kind of are different than humans from like a couple hundred years ago where we have, you know, cell phones and stuff going on. And so it's, I, I, I agree it's a good time to be alive, but I guess it's kind of biased. I don't have any other uh, time to sample. Especially for biotechnology, I think like it's kind of like the computer revolution is the comparison I, I hear a lot of. But one question I, I wanted to ask, and it was touched on in the Woolly book, is that I think this is in the the prologue. You specifically talked about how, no, that was something, something else, but you, you mentioned how like whales and elephants, even though they're really, really big, like they don't have as much of this degradation with their DNA. And in my mind, and I think you said the same thing, is that or wrote the same thing, is that like they're really big. So I would think that they have more surface area for the UV radiation to chew stuff up and make bad, you know, negative things happen. And so have you have you found any clues to that to, to the answer of that question? Like why are these really big animals like what if there are specific parts of their DNA that does that? Because I think that's the, the idea that you're going with, like there's something like special going on there. And so I'm curious, have you have you found anything that kind of like leads you to think like, oh, this might be something? Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not sure the surface area is the most salient thing because the bowhead whales are pretty far away from the. Uh, well, I mean, they they get exposed to UV and and 
cosmic radiation. I, I think the main thing is the number of cell divisions they have and the total number of cells they have should make them more prone to cancer. But, you know, they live 200 years while the mouse, which lives two years, tends to get cancer. And, you know, my initial guess was that they just spent more energy on, you know, maybe had tighter proofreading mechanisms in their cells because, because they essentially had more energy to, to burn. While, you know, mice are, have to eat constantly just to, you know, just to deal with the, their high surface area to volume ratio and heat loss and, and their high metabolic rate. But there are some some things you can find in the genomes of the elephant and the and the whale, which are suggestive but not proven. You know, things like the elephant has twenty some copies of the p fifty three gene, and we know the p fifty three gene is involved in uh, apoptosis when you have a sufficient amount of genotoxic events. So, but it's not that not that simple. But it is quite striking that that particular genome has so many copies of P53 or P53 pseudogenes, but, but ne- neither the, the, the elephant or the, or the whale genomes have, have really come up with something that's super, e- super hypothesis is super easy to test. Most of the hypothesis we're testing on aging reversal came from experiments done in mice. I don't know if you do any movie watching or anything like that in your free time, but there's a, a it's actually a book too, I, I suppose, but there's a, a movie called Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where it turns out like the mice are somehow in control the entire time. And so like, I always think when, you know, we cure cancer or like or a type of cancer or we're advancing aging in mice, it's not going to be like Planet of the Apes, it's going to be like Planet of the Mice because as, as, uh, they've had so much research into how to treat them and give them a much better life than us. But that doesn't translate over to humans. It's just like, I don't know if you ever have seen that movie or think about like all the benefits that the quality, the quality of life improvement mice over humans is um, kind of funny sometimes when I think about it. Yeah, I, I read both. I read the book and I saw the movie. It, uh, Douglas Adams is, is a, a spectacularly intelligent person, witty, I should say. Uh, he, yeah, I'd like to believe that, that we've, We've helped mice enough that they will treat us well when they take over. That's the argument I make for people. I was talking to some people recently who were expressing their concerns about AI. And I was saying my, my, my idea is that if they were to become like the, the in control, I think they'd keep us around like pets, you know, or and then the, their argument is like, how, why would they care? Like we're like ants to them. And it's, I don't think that's an appropriate analogy. It's, we we created them, like we did something nice for them. I think I think they would just mind our population in, in a subtle way, and we wouldn't know about it. But just like the mice, I think since we did some nice things to them, I, I feel like especially you and like other scientists, you'll be getting some nice benefit packages <laughs> if the, the mice overlords ever take over. Yeah, well, I I would I would argue that we should we should be granting them human rights. Just you know, we we've sort of extended human rights some of our human rights to chimpanzees, and I think the same thing should be true of of computers. Once they they don't have to pass some like impressive Turing test, like where they convince us that they're as smart as Alan Turing. They just need to show that they have an IQ of seventy or something, and then then they should have the right you know to uh, 
to live uh, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. In particular, we shouldn't be pulling their plug or causing them anxiety and pain. So right now, we're 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 doing experiments on artificial intelligence that we would not be comfortable doing on uh, human brain intelligence. That's fair. So something talking about like kind of bringing species back from extinction. I, I think in the last 40 years, something like 50% of the species on the planet are believed to have gone extinct. Or, or like it's a very big number or something like that, right? A little, it's a little tricky when you talk about mass extinction. You need to also talk about creation of species. And one of the phenomena that's occurring in modern times is since there's a lot more stirring of the pot, there's a lot more transportation of species. There's a lot more hybridization and hybrid hi, formation of hybrids between species that normally would not interact is one historically one of the biggest sources of new species. So, so just as species are dying, some are being born, and it's a little. I, I, you know, you have to be very careful about the accounting to, uh, to say whether there's, there's a net a net loss and if that net loss is in a direction that that helps or hurts the earth. I mean, when oxygen appeared on the earth, there were a lot of winners and losers in that particular step in evolution. I don't think we want to go back to the pre-oxygen days necessarily. Just You actually kind of, like, you guessed where my question was going to be. I was going to ask if, like, the rate for a new species was being born. Because I was reading how the, the coyote and the wolf, I think northwestern United States, have done that hybridization. So. I was curious as well if there was some significant rates for new species coming in. Because, like, there's a vacuum there, and, and I would think that nature likes filling vacuum. Is that something that you think about? Clearly, you did because you kind of. Well, there, there's, a, there's a, a, a nice book that came out on this topic. Yeah, so Chris Thomas wrote a book recently. He's from the University of York uh, called Inheritors of the Earth How Nature is Thriving in an Age of Extinction. And you could consider if there's a, a sixth extinct you know extinction there's also six six mass genesis and you really need to i mean you really need to do the full accounting of creation and and destruction of individual species subspecies ecosystems and and so on it's it's a little hard to say it if humans are going to influence this at all it's probably not going to come from I don't think we're going to be able to micromanage uh, millions of species or even the, the nine gigatons of, of carbon that we're turning into carbon dioxide every year. What we're more likely to manipulate are keystone species, single keystone species, maybe you know a, a couple dozen uh, that have a, a big impact on the parts of the ecosystem that we care about. It's, it's going to end up being human-centric if humans are, have to spend money on it. And, and I think examples of that would be the, the deserts, the desertification and the, and the tundra where the, where the 1400 gigatons of carbon is at risk. Those are the sort of things where we could have an impact on, on our own behalf. And I think that's where the, the idea of the woolly mammoth, well, I think you had the idea before that was pointed out to you by the Russian researcher whose name I, I can't place right Sir, now. But. Sergei Zimov and his son, Nikita Zimov. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, Zimov. I think you had the idea of bringing back a woolly mammoth before that. 
And then like when they said, hey, there's this, like if only we had this giant creature up here <laughs> to, to do some like stomping around and doing stuff, it'd be really, it'd really help to mitigate those types of concerns. And then I think like the project kind of linked up in a nice way. The question I have is, so you're, right now we're doing kind of like a species by species case when it comes to de-extinction. Do you ever see like a system scale, like an entire ecosystem type de-extinction? Like if we look at, you know, the subspecies underneath the woolly mammoth and we bring bring back like an entire type of area and like, or are we always going to be at like the species by species looking at keystone stuff? First of all, we're not really necessarily as our first priority trying to bring back uh, uh, an extinct species. We're mainly focusing on endangered species like the Asian elephant by giving it slightly different properties, like being able to enjoy itself at minus 40 degrees, um, as, as did its very close cousins, the mammoth. But you don't have to bring back the mammoth. You might uh, want something that's a little... Uh, maybe it has advantage over both the mammoth and the Asian elephant, but is effectively a member of the species. So, you know, you want it to be cold resistant. You might want it to be herpes virus resistant because that's that's one of the forces causing the Asian elephant to go extinct right now is this is this EEHV um, uh, herpes virus. You might want it to be able to help handle a slightly broader set of plants, plant toxins. Uh, Humans don't think so much about plant toxins, but most pre-agricultural plants are, uh, have toxins and and different organisms have different uh, s- strengths in that regard. You might want it to be um, have smaller tusks, uh, at least in the wild, uh, so that there would be less of a target for poachers. There's a lot of ways that you can achieve some of the ancient as well as the modern goals. Now, in terms of species downstream from those, um, there are not that many extinct species um, uh, that are that are truly missing from the tundra. What's missing is the balance uh, that that resulted in large amounts of grass, which was good because they would re- reflect sunlight two times better than the current vegetation, and they would and the sunlight that they trap they they trap more efficiently, so they sequester carbon better. So. And instead, we have trees which trap all the snow, and the and the and the trees in the snow prevent the the minus forty winter wind from cooling down the soil, which was heated up to twenty degrees in the summer, uh, positive twenty. So 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 all these this this shift from grass to trees um, uh, was unfortunate from a human centric standpoint because this could result in the melting of the of some significant fraction of the 1400 gigatons of uh carbon a lot of it being methane which is 50 times worse than carbon from a warming standpoint and you could get into a positive feedback loop uh which doesn't even particularly involve humans anymore i mean we may have contributed 15,000 years ago when we killed off all the megafauna in the arctic but it's not something we're necessarily doing today. It is something we could do something about today, but it's not like we need to point the finger and say, oh, that particular SUV is is causing all the trouble. Um, it's more like, you know, who's the who who's willing to step up and and uh and and help the ecosystem return to the balance that it that it once had that would be uh useful today. 
that's one of the things I think about when when I think about like what if if we're like the only species like sentient species in the universe. I mean, other than like you know dolphins and stuff, what would be our role if there was like nothing else out of Earth? Which I think like the the math kind of it looks good. Like there's probably stuff out there, but if we were the only ones, I, I would think that it'd be if we had to like invent a purpose, it would be like shepherding and and, and propagating positive like ecosystems around the universe. So that's just it's probably because I grew up on a farm. I like growing things, but there's the the woolly mammoth you're working on to kind of do that type of thing. Is it how how goes that process? Are we are we still like maybe five years out between getting the Asian elephant to have the traits necessary to survive in that environment? Like maybe five years out? Are we are we getting closer? Well, I think we've done we've had faster than expected progress for uh, uh, reading genomes and editing uh, elephant genomes. So we have we we have a a paper that we're putting together now or analyzed uh, 23 elephant genomes, about half of which are extinct, and then use that to guide editing. That's all gone quickly. The next step, I think, is unpredictable. Hopefully, it will be unexpectedly quick as well, but you can't tell. And that's um, getting the uh, embryos to, to grow uh, well in the, in the laboratory. We're, we're starting, we're doing most of those experiments with, with mouse embryos since they have a 20 day generation time, a gestation period rather than relative, instead of a 22 month gestation period in elephants. So it's a better, we can do the experiments more quickly that way. But if that goes well and then the, and then we can do it with elephants, um, I think we're talking in the order of a decade would be the fastest we could, um, see. Some results, but then the nice thing is if we can get the laboratory-based gestation to work out well, um, that that's extremely scalable, and and uh, um, the rewilding or the the, the the setting up of wild <coughs> um, reserves should be at least as easy as it was for bison. So bison, we went from just small, low hundreds of bison. In, in the wild to um, so like 500 bison to 500,000 today. And that was done without major government handouts uh, just by creating the right business model for uh, expansion of the bison herds. Hopefully we can do the same thing with mammoth herds, maybe even faster if we can uh, scale up the gestation period. When I was reading everything that you're reading and listening, as I, as I told you, I, I, I listened to a number of your interviews and there's, I mean, like so much, like the, there are pigs coming out soon that will have organs that can be donated to, to people. You have the Woolly Mammoth Project, you have Multiplexin, you've worked on Chris. I mean, you, you do so much. So I'm curious, like, how do you spend your time? Like on, in a given week, is there any systematization to it? Or is it like you have so much going on, like every day it's kind of hectic. Like how, how, how do you like spend your time? Well, I, I, tr- Trying to make it as boring as possible, not too. Uh, <laughs> I'm not terribly successful at that, but you know, there's a certain rhythm to it. Uh, you know, we have lab meetings on Mondays and Thursdays at, at around lunchtime, lunch Tuesday, and uh, we, you know, there's this kind of a the day is broken up into 15 minute intervals, sometimes. Uh, 
as much as an hour. Um, lab meeting might be two hours. Uh, and, you know, I walk to and from work, and it's, it's actually pretty calm. Uh, a lot of time spent on, you know, uh, undisciplined reflection, um, usually in the early morning hours. But yeah, it's, it, you know, a lot of the prioritization is done for me, and there's there's some um, paper, some uh, cool result. I'm, my day is almost entirely based on science and engineering. There's almost no management decisions to be made. But there, you know, there's uh, uh, there's kind of the ebb and flow of, of uh, problems to be solved or exciting results to be. Um, say, what next? Uh, some of them are inside my lab. Some of them are, you know, you know, a lot of my students, the postdocs go off and start companies and I continue to advise them as, as, as before. Yeah. The, the prioritization is, is pretty easy, really. Speaking of the like advisor thing, I noticed like pretty much every company that I've been looking at for the last like month that was interesting to me, had you, as an advisor in some, some form. And so I'm curious, like, what does that, what does that even look like? How do you, one, that there's quite a few of them. And then two, how do you advise people? Do they just email you when they have a problem and you're like, yeah, that's how you, you might solve that or think it. Is it as simple as that? Or like, do you have to do intricate things to be a science advisor? Uh, well, it depends. There's a lot of case specific. I mean, part of it is just staying up to speed in, in the relevant fields. Uh, and so then if a problem arises, it doesn't take a lot of extra effort to, to learn the problem. And then, and then it's just knowing your limitations that usually if I can't solve the problem in, you know, a few minutes, I'm probably not going to solve it for a few months. And so you just wait, uh, until new, new data comes in new, uh, you know, I'm kind of at the crossroads of a lot of these things. And so part of my purpose is to, is to make connections between things that n normally wouldn't be connected. Um, so I, I, you know, it's, it's rarely I can make an impact, but sometimes I can make an impact in a short period of time that has uh, out of proportion positive consequences. But, you know, usually um, either I can help or I can't. And it doesn't take that much time to figure that out. That's fair. I, I was curious about it as I learned more about how your lab is run. Two things really struck me is like how often you focus on like translating the technology or like the science into technology that can help people. And the second, how you kind of create like this engine of innovation. And so I'm curious, like how did, how did you, because I think you purposely went about making an environment where people can kind of try things and, you know, fail and keep trying and like, lead their own projects to some extent How, are there things that you do to i guess you kind of answered this earlier that you don't do a lot of management things but i feel like you probably set a, still a pretty good example but like why from the beginning was that something that was really important to you to build yeah i mean uh i i i try i try to manage indirectly rather than uh bullying you know telling people what to do uh you know it's like who i who i bring to the lab um, uh, is one way that I can influence things, uh, having ideas, uh, that I s do soft sell on. And if people don't like my ideas, then I don't 
reinforce them. I just uh, think about it some more, think of new way, fresh ways of presenting it. Um, yeah, and enc- encourage people to take risks, but not in a way that actually puts their career at risk. Just uh, you know, just to just not just not routinely reject ideas just because they're foreign or new. Um, you know, I think a lot of, some labs are, uh, are kind of uh, phobic of new ideas. Other ones, uh, you know, dismiss them as you know just not being uh, interesting or not being fruitful or not being productive. And you know, I think having a, a playful environment helps. Um, having uh, you know a range of of ages, uh, you know, from high school to say uh, older people older than me visiting, uh, and uh, having a lot of turnover. You know, there's 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 some there's a lot of statements made about uh, uh, institutional memory. Uh, I think you can have too much institutional memory and too much professionalism too. Uh, so we, we kind of keep it uh, brief and nimble. Um, and also just continuing adding new fields, uh, fields where you're an outsider. Sometimes there's an advantage to continually be an outsider requires bringing new fields. So, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, very poorly equipped to be uh, an engineer or a neurobiologist or an immunologist or any of the things that we, you know, we've contributed to, but, uh, um, but you have a fresh view sometimes. And, and, and then finally, I mean, there's many, much more I could say, but the last thing I will say is uh, it helped it, to build an interdisciplinary team. It's not, it's not, I find it's very hard to do it with a, a, a a group of disciplinarians, you know, or so a, a group of people that are expert in their field. It's much easier to build it out of people who already are good at two fields or three fields. Um, so even if they're, if they, if you take two of those people, then they, they can find something in common uh, much more easily than two strict disciplinarians. Uh, so uh, we tend to do a lot of that as well. This is probably my my last question before I let you go. The uh, like the the purpose of the question is to like get your advice on for these people. So like for a person in their last year of college or a person outside of college, person who's never been in the college who wants to get into translating science like you do or get involved in the ways that you do. What type of things would you encourage them to think about to to start living actualized in what they want to do? If that makes sense, if those like three different populations. Yeah, I, I don't. I... All those populations are not that different. Uh, I, you know, I think one of the beauties of science and maybe other fields as well is there's many different, especially science, there's many different ways to succeed. Uh, you don't necessarily have to have a degree uh, to contribute. Uh, you helps, uh, but you, you know you can be very gregarious. You can be uh, sort of a hermit. You can um, you can be really focused on math or you can be math phobic, you can, uh, uh, dry, wet, uh, there's just a lot of different ways, uh, personality types to succeed, including some fairly strong neurotypical, uh, person, uh, uh, personalities. Um, that said, uh, you need, you need to, uh, find a way to get, 
to, to follow your dreams and to get enough experience, it's, it's getting increasingly easy to get some kind of education just on the internet. I mean, there's some really good material out there, uh, especially if you're thinking out of the box, you can p- paste together exactly the stuff you need without getting distracted by taking, without taking hundreds of hours of, of slightly irrelevant uh, material. But, you know, you could get into it uh, by inventing something. You could get into it by um, do-it-yourself biology. You could, uh, you know, volunteer in a laboratory or, um, you know, writing. Uh, in the process of writing, you can um, have an influence and might might even get invented, uh, invited to... Uh, <clears throat> Sorry, get invited to do some lab work as part of your uh, research into writing something. Anyway, there's just many, many ways you can get involved, uh, and and in some cases help other people get involved. Uh, so yeah, I encourage everybody to consider consider the ways that, that they could get engaged in science, uh, no matter what their background or their day to day way they make. A living and i think at your lab you have kind of like an open door policy to some extent where people can come in and i don't know pitch themselves is the right way like but like you you consider them even if they just like you didn't know them beforehand yes i mean there is some selectivity but but yeah there's uh i don't think we 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 try to uh keep an open mind as to who can can contribute there's not a a particular stereotype that we insist insist on and and it's and it's all it's open in a second sense in that that you know we're one of the more open source uh labs meaning that you know we were we developed one of the few open source uh dna sequencing instruments um and we also have one of the few open source arguably the only open source uh genome environment and trait data set so basically a, a open source human biology which is a personal genomes.org so it's open in a few ways and I'm, I'm sure there's some ways that it's uh, there, there's some filtering going on this is a section I didn't originally want to add in but after talking with George I thought you know why not I think it's something that should be talked about and it's a little bit personal so if you hate it I mean you'll never hear me really talk about it again <laughs> I don't like saying thank you, like in the recording, because I think that's very disingenuous. Like, oh, thanks for coming. And then you say, I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> you know, I, I just wanted to say it uh, so you know that genuinely I, I do appreciate you taking the time. And the thing I wanted to say to you is um, this is kind of a weird thing, but your research, I have a genetic illness. And like several years ago, I almost died a bunch of times. But the, um, like the stuff that led to me being able to be alive today comes from the research you did with the Genome Project and like all the making the accessibility of screening multiple people that have um, related symptoms and figuring out what the DNA, uh, the genetic cause of it was. And the, the drug that I take now to make sure I, I don't die in, a, in an obnoxious way is, is like kind of from you. So I just wanted to, at, at like the last thing, I just wanted to say thank you for like dedicating your life to genetics. And, and um, I'm like one person that literally would not exist if it wasn't for you. Well, I, I, I can't think of a, more moving uh, comment that could be made uh, to 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 
to feel like, well, this conversation has been terrific and, and, it, and it, you, you really encouraged me to, to double my efforts. Uh, uh, so, so, so thank you for, for that, uh, bit of information. I hope, uh, your listeners are inspired by what you just said as well. This is a section I didn't originally want to add in, but after talking with George, I thought, you know, why not? I think it's something that should be talked about, and it's a little bit personal, so if you hate it, I mean, you'll never hear me really talk about it again. (laughs) Other than that, I want to inform people before we go that there is a new way to show support for the podcast and to keep it advertisement-free from now until forever, which is called Patreon. If you go to Patreon and look for Learning With Lowell, you'll see this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at Lowell This Year, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends. Please and thank you.